0: Podcast Revolution Network presents
1: The Way with a Noah.
0: Way with
1: Anoa. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of with of the Way with Noah. Happy New Year! Um, took a little bit of a break during the holidays because you know sometimes that's what we need to do to regroup and re-energize. And we are now here um, back beginning of January, 2019. Like wild. And, you know, going into January, there are were, there were so many different like calls to action for various different things. Unfortunately, we are still in the middle of the government shutdown, which is ridiculous over that stupid wall that Mexico was gonna pay for, right? But never was gonna pay for. Um, but, but, but another call to action that many of us have seen um, trending and across social media was um, clemency for Cynthia Brown, right? Um, and it just so happens that today, uh, Governor Haslam from Tennessee actually did grant her clemency Finally, um, I know a couple weeks ago there was a grant of clemency To several individuals and her name was not on the list But people, you know continue to make calls and write And i'm really excited because i'm joined by two amazing people, um The first is someone, I mean, she's my love. And when I first met her in real life, I was super excited. I was like, oh my God, you're the Clarissa. And she was like, I have no clue what you're talking about. I'm just Clarissa. I just exist. Uh, Clarissa Brooks is an amazing young organizer here in Atlanta. And apologies, you guys. I don't say young to be rude or anything. I say young because I'm just impressed and just in awe of your awesomeness. Um, And then I'm also joined from from Nashville, from both BL and Nashville, uh, Martez Gaines. And and, and, and you know, if you guys have been following what's been going on the last several weeks, last couple of months, like they have been that center point on the ground. Um, there was a really amazing like guidance, like, you know, sample call uh, sheet and like all types of other resources that just came out of their chapter that I think were really, really instrumental for helping um, other folks be able to take the initiative and have their own call parties. I know some of the um, ladies that you know did call phone banking here in Georgia for Stacey Abrams. I remember that was one of the things that they were very thankful for because then they in turn were able to do their own little call sessions and stuff like that because they had a clear script with the issues right there. So, so Clarissa Martinez, thank you so much for joining me this evening.
0: Definitely, thank you for having me.
1: Same. Thanks for having us. Yeah, um, definitely. So, um, Martez, I'll kind of just start with you just 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 like being in Tennessee and dealing with this case, like kind of how was it, you know, in terms of like ramping up the advocacy and stuff around making this like an actionable demand? I mean, I know there have been a lot of people who've been working, you know, around this for a longer period of time than what we just saw in social media the last few weeks and months. But, like, just can you talk to us a little bit just about, like, just the on the ground effort and the organizing, you know, with with your uh, chapter and then just other partners?
0: Yes, most definitely. First, I want to start off really quickly. Like, um, so I'm actually from Baltimore originally. I moved down to Atlanta. So Clarissa and I have been organizing together for the past few years. Um, and it's been so interesting because I moved to Nashville in August. Um, and I heard of Centoia's case, but I had no clue that Centoia was in Nashville. At the time, so it was so interesting when I did find out um, about Santoya Brown being here in Nashville. Um, I joined BLM Nashville's chapter, um, and I just realized like once I found out, I was like, there's something that must be done. Um, and so uh, there was myself, uh, Brittany Pascal, and Justin Lane, um, and a few other folks, but we decided that we needed to go um, interrupt Governor Haslam. Um, so, Governor Haslam was doing a forum on education. Um, at the library and say, well, this is a public space. He's a public official and we're going to go make some public noise. Um, and so for us, it was important that um, we brought Santoya's case back to the forefront of his mind. Like he was about to get out. Well, he's, he's actually about to leave uh, his governorship soon. I think that's the 18th or 19th. Um, and we knew that this needed to happen at this moment. Um, so we took that opportunity to go interrupt him and we hadn't stopped since. Um, and, uh, it's been, it's been really interesting. Uh, one, uplifting the work that other folks have been doing for years, um, but then also, again, putting a different spin on it with the interrupt uh, interruption of Governor Haslam. Uh, we shut down some streets last Saturday that just happened, um, and we did the National Week of Action, which included all those phone banking, um, right. uh, letter writing, and all of that good stuff. So it's, it's been interesting.
1: Right, right, right. Uh Really, really, like I said, that's really good stuff. And I appreciate the context too. you know, being able to amplify the work and, and then also the shutdown that, right. Thank you for bringing that up. The shutdown that did happen because that really did like kick it up and kick it up a notch. And I really think that, that having you all just like right there directly, like you said, it's a public space and public noise. I mean, we, we need to show up and demand that those people who are in positions of of, of so-called Representing the public and serving the public actually do so, right? And grapple right. with these very complex and, and serious issues, Clarissa. Um, so when Clarissa and I first met, like I said, Clarissa and I have been mutual files for a long time. Like I said, I'm very familiar with Cla- Clarissa's work. But when we first met, we first met at a at a gathering here in Atlanta. Um, folks went to show solidarity for Santoya's case. Um, and so Kenyette uh, Barnes, who is co-founder of the Mute R Kelly you know, uh, organizing effort, she held a, a, you know, rally here in Atlanta and Clarissa was present. And we were just talking about, you know, some of the actions that were happening outside of Tennessee. Um, Clarissa, can you just talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you all, you know, um, you know, you and your squad down here organizing kind of helped contribute to this overall effort?
2: Yeah. So, um, I, like you said, am a writer and organizer. Um, so actually, Um, Martez and I's mutual friend, Eva Dickerson, hosted a letter writing party and phones app party. Um, So from there, myself, we were kind of all together. So um, a little bit of backstory. So myself and Martez all were, Eva, everyone, we were all part of this organization called AUC Shut It Down. Um, So we all kind of worked from there, even though the organization doesn't exist anymore we are family um and community with each other so we were already at the letter writing party at Eva's house um and we got on the call to organize with BLM Nashville which Martez is a part of so really it was like support the gang support the family um and see what this one was going to look like so it was really a no-brainer for us um and so we automatically jumped in um and so when I saw you at the rally I think Martez and I hadn't figured out the Twitter forum yet, um, but from there, myself, Martez, Brittany, and Justin organized a Twitter forum, I, I think maybe the second week of December, um, just to get the word out and give people, like, basic information mm-hmm. about her case, um, and I think that was really important, because a lot of people had heard about her case, but didn't know the specifics, didn't know right. how long she had been been in there, um, and so, yeah, I'm just really proud of the a part of it today has been a day to say the least
1: um, I'm sure and it's also like there's many people who didn't even realize like like people kept talking about because I remember seeing like when folks were, were recounting her story folks didn't realize that she's actually already been in jail for like 14 15 years now she's yeah. not still a teenager right yeah like she was a teenager and 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 not that like it's any less important you know that she's but but to understand like how long this injustice has been going on in terms yeah. of her incarceration. I think it's really important for people to understand that. But but so I wanna I wanna kinda go back to something you know you were you were noting about um you know the work that you all did because I completely forgot about that when I was when I was first talking with you dude. I just let's just go back because you all when you talk about being family and even though the organization you organized through did not does not exist anymore. This work that you're collectively doing, even though you may have all started in Atlanta, you know, now Martez is in Nashville, just talk to me. Either one of you can jump in about building this type of organizational capacity to 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 work towards liberation, to do the work of justice, like that that's necessary, not because it's like the cool fashionable thing to do, but because it's what's actually you're being driven to do. Like so AUC shut it down, can you just give us, I know what it is. And but but can you just talk to us a little about what what that actually was and then how you all kind of evolved from there?
0: Clarissa, you think I, I think Clarissa should start off with this. Oh,
2: goodness. OK. Um, yeah. So AC Shut It Down was a student led organization, um, not affiliated with any specific school, just students who cared about Black liberation. Um, so it was a political education or direct action organization, advocacy, all that good stuff. We were just some Black kids who cared deeply about liberation um, and we got together to figure that out. So Martez and I, I, i correct me if I'm wrong, I think Martez joined at the same time as me because um, we joined this kind of e-board that we were part of through it. Um, But we joined AUC Shut It Down during Hillary for Who. So we were the students that disrupted Hillary Clinton in 2015. Um, And from there, we were doing nonstop organizing. So from 2015 to probably, probably say like middle of 2018, um, we were doing nonstop back to back direct action, political education, advocacy, working with administration working with students, working with orgs on campus. Um, So we've been, we have, we're really young, but we have our own burnout and our own trauma from organizing because we've been nonstop. Um, And from there, we have a lot of experience. So when Martez went to Nashville, it was really a no brainer. Like Martez really didn't even have to ask us. It was like, absolutely, we'll get on the call um, and do the work that needs to be done. And I think that's just because we have seen wins um, and because we know that it's possible. Um, so AC Shut It Down was also a part of the coalition of folks that helped get the indictment on the Anthony Hill case in Atlanta. Um, so we, we've we seen our fair share of losses, but we've seen some really amazing wins. So I think that it really was not a question for us to help out in whatever way we could.
0: Yeah. And to jump in Really quickly. It's so funny to add a, an amendment to that story. Um, I actually joined after Freddie Gray was murdered. So it was in the um, spring semester of 2015. But the funny thing is because like and I think this is a testament to like how close we all had, uh, how close we all got and how our stories seem to meld together. Most of us that like, you know, still talk about Asian shut it down. We joined like right after one another in such like a ripple effect but it's so funny because like our stories have melded together so much that it's like we just been in there, we we've just been there and we operate through that. And so when we were doing stuff on the ground, like Clarissa said, I just knew like I'm hitting up the folks from AC Other Down. Even if the organization, you know, title doesn't exist, that runs through our blood. Um and I just knew for a fact that those folks, my folks, my family, um, would step up and I knew that they would do what they had to do on, on in Atlanta.
1: Right, right. So so no, that's that's beautiful. I think I saw a lot of people because a lot of times folks do get caught up in titles and org existence and when it's time to just do work and move things to action, like, you know, I think it's a beautiful thing when people are able to come together and do what needs to be done. Um so just 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 thinking, because I know Clarissa, you had like some tweets earlier today, just just kind of going through and talking about putting into context what this meant. And I just want to, you know, I mean maybe Martez, I'll start with you. Like, uh, you know, there's been, this has been an ongoing struggle, you know, uh, uh, Centoya, her family, organizers in Tennessee, other folks have really been working hard for a long time for this to happen and advocating around her case. But there are many centoyas in our system, right? Like, um, for, for there, there are so many other names that don't actually even get to the same level, uh. Of this, like, so, so, what does it look like to try and shift? I mean, I know we're, it's it's a good day to not even, to only have helped, done a little bit on Twitter, to made a phone call. Like, it still is an amazing feeling. So, I can only imagine how folks who've had more of an impact and direct role in this field, but like, how do we start driving advocacy more concretely in this, in this like area on these issues to, to really address, you know, the persisting. I mean, I hate to keep using the same word injustice, but I mean that's that's what it is. Like we have a system that is set up to not only penalize but subjugate, you know, those who are being victimized and brutalized in various ways versus actually giving them the tools and resources they need to to, to get out of those situations. How do we, you know, help share these narratives but also help organize in a way that can, you know, free more people. Or, or, or start shifting the way we're even dealing and interacting with people in these spaces.
0: I didn't know who the, the question was for, but uh, to jump in, I think that something for me and then the philosophy that I think I've operated through is that I'm a, I'm a prison abolitionist. And so Centolía's case is just one of, of many cases one um, but we're really fighting for the dismantling of the prison system in general. Like that's just what we're fighting for. And so I think that what's going to be important for us to sort of as we move forward is that even when we are fighting for those individual centoyas, we have to remember that we are still fighting for a new system. And that through this, we are we are trying to imagine what um, what, what community sort of accountability looks like. Um, and I think that's something that it really—it just takes our our wildest dreams, our wildest imaginations—to um, really figure out how we can hold each other accountable in in our communities um, without sending folks to jail. Um, and so for for us, that's that's the way we operated through this whole time. We knew that Santoya did a lot of things while she was in prison that you know makes her uh, a, the perfect person to be released. Um, but we operated under under the assumption that, that she shouldn't have, she should have never been there in the first place and that folks should never be in prison in the first place. Um, so I think that if folks sort of operate under that, then it makes the work, uh, you start to see the work a little differently. hmm
1: hmm No, I definitely appreciate that. Um, and, and and I think when you touched on, you know, being a prison abolitionist and also framing her case in the context of an overall, you know, way of approach, I think that's really important and helps with being able to direct more of this work going forward. Um, but one of the things, so Clarissa, because that's what I got confused. I apologize, you guys, when I was starting to ask a question. Clarissa, what I wanted to ask you about was like, one of the things that came up earlier was the fact that, you know, Tentoya hasn't granted clemency, but she will be on parole for the next 10 years once she's released. You know, so um, I think it was framed as like, you know, 24 years of the state control. And and there's this this conversation that I'm seeing play out, like, do we are we happy about these things? Like, can we can we can we enjoy this as a win, even though there's still this other still like other thing that's attached to even what what seems to be a win or finally justice being served? Like, like, do we do we immediately jump to what else is? not great about the situation or do we at least take a moment and breathe and 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 be in this moment for right at least just for right now
2: yeah um and I definitely want Martez to jump in here too so I think that's something I've been thinking about all day too just because just being transparent like I was, like, literally, so when I found out about this, I ca- I went to the bathroom, cried, of course, um, and called Martez on my lunch break and was like, this is a huge deal. Um, and just talking about how this is history changing and that these wins are important. Um, and then the rest of the day, I was just seeing people critique it and be like, you know, like she's still on parole and like getting those details are really important. And I think it's important for us to know that. Um, But I think it's also important to think about the fact of like two weeks ago when we did the Twitter forum, when we were on the phone calls trying to figure out what to do, like we were not sure if she was going to clemency at all. Um, So I think, I don't know. I I think I just, I think I'll say for myself, I want to enjoy this moment. I want to enjoy this moment and realize that in August, Centoya will be out of prison, will still be under parole for 10 years. um, But that I know for myself, I'm not done and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure she has all the resources she needs when she's released. Um, So, yeah, I think for myself, I'm going to enjoy this. You know, I'm going to order my Chipotle and be excited by the fact that something that I did helped. Um, but I also understand that we are all under surveillance and that parole is definitely not an answer and that her record should be wiped clean. Um, because she was never supposed to be in prison in the first place. Um, Because survival sex work is something that we have a hard time acknowledging. Um, And I think that with the conversation around sexual assault and sexual violence, and even with the R. Kelly docu-series, um, it is opening up conversations to where people can listen um, and be there for survivors in real ways. So I'm hoping that's what the win is, is that in August, I can get on Twitter and be like, hey, y'all, here's a link to a GoFundMe. Hey, y'all, housing has been secured? We need to make sure she's good. You know, I want that to be the win. But I think automatically going into critique, especially for folks who have been on the ground, like, we we, we got to take a breath, you know, like one second to let the moment sink in.
0: Yeah. And, and to jump in on that, I think I, I've seen all those critiques today. And, and I think even for myself, I had to sit, sit there and reckon with, like, yes, this is a win. Yes, she has parole. Yes, she doesn't get out to August 7th, which by the way, August 7th will make 15 years exactly when she'll uh, have been in prison. Um, But I had to think about that to myself today and I had to realize, like, this is a win. This is a win. And I think it's very easy for us on the outside to critique this from this academic sort of lens, but we are not the ones that are sitting in prison. And so I think that it's important because even though she has to, you know, be on parole for the next 10 years, she does not have to spend those 10 years in a concrete box. And I think that's, that is a win. That is a win. And I think it's important that we celebrate that win, but also recognize which we know in the first place is that the struggle isn't over. Um, So we can take those wins and then celebrate that. And then the next day, keep moving with the struggle until all our people are free. Um, So it's a win. It's a win.
1: Yeah, like, so I I love the way y'all both, you know, hit that too, talking about, because I think we need to redefine what it means to win, right? Like, I think we're socialized to think that winning is this one, like, definitive goal, that's just it, and we're done. And I appreciate what you just said, Martez, about how, you know, this is a win, but that doesn't mean the struggle is over, right? It doesn't mean that there isn't more work to be done. I mean, obviously there is way more work to be done, but it's good to sometimes recognize these different wins that do come along, because sometimes they're few and far between, and we need something to kind of fortify us, you know, for the next battle, for the next go round, because there are so many other people still in the system. And, and Clarissa, what you touched on about survival sex, sex work, about, you know, those who have been victimized through sex trafficking and other forms of abuse, you know, in, in these different power dynamics. I mean, these are different con- different tight lanes of conversation, but the way they intersect in terms of the way people are penalized in the criminal justice system, I mean, there is a real conversation that needs to be had. And and I think the one recurring point that I saw that I definitely agree with everyone is like she should have never been in there to begin with, right? Like like when you look at the facts of her case, I mean no one should be in a box, period. But In this case, we're talking about someone like even if you were someone who believed like you should have people who go to jail, she should have never gone to begin with. Like it's just it's just it's just walking through all this stuff today has just been like, wow, there's so much to discuss, but there is this win that still should be, you know, reveled in and enjoyed. So thinking beyond like this, what is next? Um, I know Clarissa, you just said, you know, we have until August, uh um, so making sure that there's support and stuff for her when she's on the on, you know, when she comes out, you know, what is next for the for the different work that you all are doing? Or what how do you see this, you know, moving forward into other work or other cases, or what do you see happening? Clarissa, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I was actually, um, of course, the organizing me was already like, okay, what is the next event that we can figure out? Um, I know for myself, um, at least in the AUC and for students at Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark, um, we're gonna be hosting a letter writing party to her, kind of a celebration, um, sending her as many positive notes and letters as we can while she still is um, in prison. And then I know personally, I know that I want to get more well-versed on prison abolition work um, and really thinking differently about that. Um, Something I want to plug is um, Miriam Kaba was on a podcast called The End of the World, um, How how to Survive the End of the World. And she talked um, really explicitly about how we see abolition, how we see discipline and consequences. um, And I think that's something I really want to do better this year with especially around sexual violence. Um, People talk a lot about you know, putting rapists in jail and all these things. And I think for this year, for myself personally, in my work, I want to make sure that I'm thinking differently about what justice looks like. Um, And so that's going to be my task for the year, because um, if I'm really about this abolition life, for real, for real, um, it means talking about it more openly with people so that we can get folks to a point where we can solve issues in our community, um, because calling the cops
0: is just not the answer ever <laughs> yeah i'm um, so i'm glad you mentioned that um i think for the past few years i have gone under the philosophy of, of, of being a prison abolitionist um and i think it's something that i'm constantly having to again like be in this like mental struggle with it's like okay but if someone harms especially when we are talking about sexual violence it's like but well, what do we do and so i think something that everyone who goes into prison abolition has to sort of start with the fact that we don't know the answers. Um, And it is important that we work in community to figure out how we hold the community accountable. Um, And that's, I think, where folks should start um, when they start this work. Um, But back to the question about what we're doing in the next few months, um, I think for us, it's gonna be important, one with Centoya's permission and then with her family's permission, it would be great to throw a welcome home party. to, to, to show her, we sent a lot of letters, we sent a lot of letters, but to show her again that this community is here um, and that we've been thinking about her like since since whenever we found out in our individual lives, we've been thinking about her. Um, we're gonna figure out how we can raise money, but in a way that we make sure that it gets to her. And so right now what we're telling folks to do is to continue to put money on her JPay account um, and to continue to use MoneyGram to put money on her commissary while she's still there. Um, so that's what we're really telling people now. We have not heard or found out about a, a, um, a sanctioned, um, GoFundMe just yet. And so we were telling people to just send that money straight to Centoya, um, as opposed to sending it to any GoFundMes right now. Um, and then, you know, when we do find whether her family sets it up or, um, something like that, then we'll amplify that particular GoFundMe account. Um, but we hope to, um, again, really make sure that the resources are there during this transition. She will be finishing her bachelor's in May, Um, will finish with her bachelor's in May. Uh, So that'll be great. Um, From what I'm hearing, there are a lot of folks who already want to have um, jobs lined up for Centoia. And so I think that what we'll continue to do is plug into the folks who have already been doing work, uh, plug into the new folks who want to do work, um, and make sure that there, again, is this collaborative effort to make sure that that transition period on August 7th and going forward Um, that that is easy and smooth for Centoya.
1: I love it. Thank you. Please make sure, you know, as soon when you, I know when you guys have information, you will let all the rest of us know so that we too can participate. And folks, definitely keep an eye out. Like I said, look for the people who have been not just the, maybe the loudest or biggest on social media platforms, but the ones actually, you know, more directly involved with the work being done for guidance on where to send your money, what to do, etc because we do want to make sure that we're maximizing how to provide real meaningful support um because when 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 sis is released in august you know there's 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 more work to be done and keep an eye out for other efforts and stuff because like we just talked about there are many unfortunately there are many centoyas um centoyas and other folks that that are that are trapped in these systems so i want to thank you both for joining me this evening please uh I'll start with Martez and Clarissa, if you guys want to share your social media information or anything or the way people can find you. Uh, So Martez, like if you want to shout out your Twitter handle or anything like that. Um, But thank you so much for joining me. And then I'll go to Clarissa and then we'll close out.
0: Yes, yes. Thank you again. My name is Martez Gaines. Um, My Twitter and Instagram handle is Taz underscore and underscore bugs. Um, But also importantly, please follow the uh, Black Lives Matter Nashville Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, and a lot of the things um, that we have, any updates will be coming through those, those uh, platforms.
1: Thank you. Clarissa, where can the people find you?
2: Oh, my goodness. Um, I am on Twitter at Clarissa M. Brooks. Um, writing, surviving, trying. Um, and, yes, yeah, it's existing. Um, I will be writing a piece about Centoia for Teen Vogue. So I'm super excited about that. So look out mm-hmm. for that.
1: Very nice. Very exciting. Well, thank you both for joining me. I know it was short notice, but I wanted to talk to you like right away. And um, so, yeah, so appreciate you both. Let's, let's continue to do good work and continue to have these conversations and and, and let me know, however, I and others can help amplify because having a slightly sizable platform, that's the big, that's the most important thing to me is making sure we get the information that's like right connects people versus just I'm a person with a platform and I can be loud and and I'm proud about it. So I appreciate y'all a lot. No shade, just being me. Um, I will talk to you guys (laughs) soon. Stay tuned for another segment. Peace. All right. Greetings all this next segment is a conversation. I was proud to have, uh, not too long ago with two writers, um, who put out pieces with rewire.news looking at issues in forced sterilization um, of indigenous women in Canada and the United States. Um, Earlier this year, Mary Annette Pember wrote a a piece that looked at the history of sterilization of Native American women. And also uh, uh, Mary Annette talked a little bit with us about a really amazing documentary that has come out as well. Um, And then we looked at the piece sterilized Without Consent, Indigenous Women in Canada File Class Action Lawsuit, which brings to light widespread abuses conducted by Saskatchewan health professionals violating the rights and, and, and just personal liberties of many women within that province and and there's some record indicating that it's happened elsewhere within um the canadian uh, uh, borders so these two women are breaking it down a really good conversation and it dovetails nicely into our conversation we're having right now in terms of how do we support those who are not only brutalized by you know a, a partner or some other familiar but who are also brutalized by systems and particularly how this disproportionately affects women of color and how we have to fight to get redress, you know, over, and when we're talking about the forced sterilization, whether it's indigenous women or black women, uh, Latinas, like it's been a long-term, it's been decades in the making that these battles are happening here in the US and abroad. So check it out. I was sent an email a while back with two really uh, great pieces. Uh, one from earlier this month and another one from May. Uh, the first was sterilized without consent, indigenous women in Canada filed class action lawsuits. And the second had more of a historical context uh, to the legacy of sterilization in Indian country. And that one is uh, the legacy of sterilization in Indian country uh, that was back in March. And so I have two writers with me today. Who um, are going to talk some more and dig in a little bit more about this this history? Uh, we've talked about sterilization somewhat in recent years, but not nearly as much. People accepted as a foregone conclusion that this is something that happened. It was bad, but now we live in this great you know modern era, and and as we're thinking about like the current battles in terms of reproductive justice and reproductive rights and human rights, um, it's still very much important and to not just the language and the work that we're all doing, that we actually come to terms and grapple and learn more about the experiences of other women in this space. So I'm joined by Mary Annette Pember and Anna Kusmer. Um, and, and Mary, can you just tell us a little about yourself before we get, dig deep sure.
3: in? Sure. Well, hi, it's a pleasure to be asked to be on your show. Um, I'm, um, I'm an Indigenous woman. I'm a member of the Red Cliff, Band of Ojibwe tribe of Wisconsin, and um, I've been writing about Native uh, American women's issues surrounding reproductive rights and you know violence against Native women, um, Native Native American women's health for a number of years, and uh, was contacted actually by a, a, a Native women's advocate Sharon Asatoya who is Comanche and uh, runs a Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center in South Dakota. And she told me about that the film, Anna and that's how I um, came to write about this particular instance. Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Um, Anna, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, your work in, in relationship to this stuff?
4: Yeah, um, thank you, thank you for, for the interest in the story and um, for having me on on your show, Anoa. Um, I am a freelance writer working on um, issues pertaining to the environment and health. I'm particularly interested in um, how different people have different access to um, aspects of environment and health. And uh, I wrote this story recently about um, indigenous women in Canada, um, you know, facing a lot of racism in the health system and um, experiencing forced sterilization. So that's how I came into the story. Just um, you know, heard about it and dug in for Rewired.news.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Now now, Mary, just just given, you know, just your just background experience with this material, can you just talk to us a little bit about, you know, the piece that you wrote previously that looked kind of more at this this legacy and treatment of indigenous women and native women in um just in terms of forced tubal ligations and sterilization in this way?
3: Um, well, you know, it's difficult to find a number, by the way, mm-hmm. regarding the uh, the number of women, Native women who are sterilized. It's, it's been, you know, quoted from, oh my gosh, from just thousands to the many of thousands. But um, the investigation into uh, forced sterilization or sterilization without consent um, was actually spearheaded by, um, by a senator, um, from South Dakota, um, Aber- Senator Abaresk, who was really instrumental. He was on the uh, Senate for, I forget what the committee was called then, but, um, it's like the Senate Committee Committee for Indian Affairs, and he wrote a, a letter calling for a congressional investigation. Um, many of his constituents had, uh, complained about this, and also concurrently, um, about a number of, uh, like drug tests that were done, you know, involuntarily, like on Native kids in boarding schools and, and also, I think, on patients uh, within Indian Health Service. So the interesting thing, though, about um, the sterilizations of that era on Native women, it was part of a much broader um, kind of the milieu that uh, you know this whole like eugenics movement had begun on oh my word you know back in around the like 19 teens or something and and it sort of reared its head again in the uh, 60s there was this book written by um, called the Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich and it was just sort of formed like it's it gave birth to this social meme of this this paranoia um, that there was this coming apocalypse associated with, um, with with overpopulation and particularly with overpopulation of you know of poor people really and people of well mm-hmm. and then by extension people of color um, mm-hmm. and subsequently you know it was it really shocking how it became part of federal policy um, and Native women arguably might be among not the greatest impacted population. Um, California was especially um, enthusiastic about their sterilization program. And South Carolina, I think, sterilized like almost 8,000 people, including, you know, children, boys. And they actually have, um, I think in 2012, um, there was a push and I think they actually passed a law for reparations for people who were sterilized. And I don't know if they've actually, and then of course there was some, and there was some trouble regarding those reparations because then it was found that that would go against people's uh, receiving like, um, you know, social security and Medicaid. So uh, I don't know what has I haven't unfortunately I haven't kept up with um what has uh I think it was like in twenty fifteen it was the called the Eugenics Compensation Act. So it was really part of this um milieu about um, you know, demonizing poor folks and then by extension people of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I I I appreciate
1: also that comment comment uh uh that backgrounder about like that the book and the popular that that fear i remember um, just hearing just accounts and my mother and other folks just talking about like in north carolina with sterilization forced sterilization of black women um, that happened for a long time and in the into that same period, 60s,
3: maybe I remember correctly. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. It, 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 that's a very important correction. It was North Carolina, terribly sorry. Oh
1: no, no, no. I wasn't, I didn't, I I I was like, wow, California too. But but I think to your point though, it was so pervasive, this mentality, mm-hmm. like you were saying, about poor people and people of color in particular, which we tend we're disproportionately represented among those targeted, right, in these these poverty elimination type programs. I think to your point though, it, it, it the pervasiveness and how there's a story that needs to be told. Told, we can't just like discard and act like, oh, that was another time. Um, you know, I was reading, you know, in your piece and it was talking about how like there the authority like apologized, or one of the women you were talking with was saying that you know apologies and money cannot give me back my babies, and that yeah. just was so powerful and just really resonated very strongly with me. Um, the thought that, you know, something so precious and sacred is taken away from people without without their consent, without any type of conversation or real recognition of what is being done to them and to really a whole group of people.
3: Yes. And, you know, uh, you know, interestingly, not only has the Indian Health Service or the U.S. government not apologized, they've never admitted that it happened. They have admitted, you know, publicly, they did, um the Indian Health Service did release a memo that admitted that they may have not precisely followed all of their guidelines regarding surgery. And that's really about it. So versus, you know, North Carolina, which I think, you know, by, you know, the act of actually coming up with this, this, um. Um, Eugenics Apology Act. Um, mm-hmm. That's the thing. I think there is, you know, this Eugenics Compensation Act. I think, you know, the United States has really never apologized to Native people. There was kind of an apology buried some years ago, just in general, for some of the misguided federal policies, you know, rooted in um, um Thinking, I think this was back in know, like 2012, but you know, I think there's like a real fear on the part of the U.S. government if they ever go down that path of reparations. There's a whole lot of other people that are going to be looking at reparations for many, many policies. So, the, you know, I think even just getting it admit somewhat of an admission that I just didn't follow some policies was, um, you know, somewhat It felt like somewhat of a win. Now that, um, the woman that made the AMA film, and uh, also Sharana Satoya and some other Native women are—they have, um, put um, a petition online, um, asking the U.S. government to apologize.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll definitely have to look for that link for the petition and get that you know up and and pushed out and shared along with this episode. Um, Anna, can you just talk to us a little bit about um, this? this uh, class action lawsuit that is happening in Canada.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, to build on, um, what Mary was saying about the history in the U S um, Canada has a a similar history of um, eugenics policies. Um, and, but what we find with this class action lawsuit, um, that was just recently launched a couple months ago is that this is still the mentality of, um, of, uh, you know this this uh, uh treating um, Indigenous women differently in hospitals and undermining their bodily autonomy this is still very entrenched in Canadian healthcare systems um so in Saskatchewan what we're ha- what we're seeing now in this story is that there are two women that are you know representative plaintiffs in this class action lawsuit um who talk in detail about their own experience a uh, traumatizing experience being sterilized without their consent um, and since their story has come to light and in the past couple of years, over 60 women have come forward um, and contacted the law firm to say something very similar happened to them. Um, they're extremely horrifying stories, actually, about their experiences um, being um, treated terribly, um, you know, sometimes being told that uh, they couldn't. So in general, what's happening, what was happening in these hospitals um, is that women were coming in for birth. And then in kind of the fraught, uh, hectic time right after birth, um, they were either kind of encouraged to get the sterilization procedure um, and not really told exactly what the details were. Some were told it was irreversible. Um, so some were told that it was reversible when, it, in fact, it's not. Um, and these women had just given birth. I mean, they were they're not in the correct state of mind to make such a decision. Um And I think a lot of some doctors basically knew that either they knew that um consciously or subconsciously um and, and what we know is that these women are, are treated differently than than other people that are brought that are that come to these hospitals so um, women have suffered immensely from having this happen to them um and now we're seeing a lawsuit um it's coming to light, and um not sure exactly what's going to happen, but what we do know is that this story is coming out and Um, What we also know is that one of the women who came forward, um, her story is from 2017. You know, it's practically yesterday. This is absolutely still happening. Um, And this lawsuit and some other um, advocates in Canada are working really hard to bring the story out and um, really root out what is the kind of systemic um, racism that women are facing in Canadian hospitals and how do we um, really change the system so that this type of thing doesn't happen to their, their children.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you think that, you know, people think like, oh, that was so long ago or that's a bygone era. Like you said, 2017 is just last year. And, you know, from your piece, it says that um, while most of the cases of people have come forward have been heavily uh, located in Saskatchewan, it's also been also in Ontario and Manitoba as well that there have been some accounts Um and so, like you were saying, like, right after, you know, right after you get childbirth, I remember with my two, it is not, and especially depending on if you've had C-sections, just all types of stuff going on, you're not necessarily in the most coherent state. I mean, just, just in reading your piece, it talked about um, some were even denied access to their babies if they didn't agree. Yeah, Like, this is just mm-hmm. horrific on, I mean, it's something out of a really bad horror movie, but it's real, yeah. and it's the government doing this, like... So from from your from your like your your research and stuff into this, like what, what is some of the response been, I guess, to you know, this revelation of this happening? Well,
4: I think that some people, um, unfortunately, a lot of the indigenous communities in Canada, they're not particularly surprised. I mean, they're aware of the fact that there's racism in their healthcare system. Um, And there's a lot of cases of um, particularly indigenous women coming in for reproductive care um, being treated poorly. And um, so um, I think people are definitely horrified and um, they're in a way happy that this is coming out. But they're extremely angry um, and they're calling on their government to take this extremely seriously um, enact, uh, you know, essentially a systemic change for better representation of Indigenous people in the kind of stru- structural aspects of healthcare, um, better representation in healthcare in every sense, um, and also a constitutional right to um, Indigenous healthcare. So, you know, there are people calling for drastic change, um, which, unfortunately, I think drastic change is what what is necessary for um, types of incidents like this to completely stop because some of the incidents, they're, they're insidious, you know. They're women who are basically treated poorly and undermined at the hospital. It's not always extremely cut and dry what, what happened to them, but they know that they were violated um, and they feel that, that, um, that pain of not having th- their choices and their autonomy respected. So we really need a systemic shift and um, the people advocating for change are calling for um, a drastic change in, in Canadian healthcare.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if either of which of you, I mean, you probably both have thoughts on this, but just thinking, just listening through, and just from, like I said, what I, the limited amount I do know about this topic, at least as it pertains here to groups in the states, um, and then just thinking about just the history of, you know, colonialism, sexism, racism, xenophobia, oppression in, you know, the Americas, right, because, um, there have been practices that, you know, American or North American based companies have been involved in, in terms of other, you know, women in other countries and forced sterilizations and, and testing products elsewhere, but not going back to remove. Them. I mean, there's a whole, there is a whole body of literature and work around all of this stuff. We just tend to think, or the average American, and I'm, I'm I can't speak for Canadians, haven't been to Canada, but I, I feel like yeah. those folks who reside on the North American continent in the, in America and in, um, you know, Canada probably tend to have an attitude towards you know these other places. Like, well, that type of thing doesn't happen here. But what you're speaking into in terms of the discrimination and racism in the healthcare system, I mean, we see it in numerous ways. But this does seem to be one of the most insidious and violent ways when you just think about violating women in such a very yeah. you know traumatic and personal way. But 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 just thinking about, I wonder if either or one of you want to jump in and just talk about a little bit about, about like what this. Like they're reflecting on like the history and how much deeper work that that our societies need to do in terms of addressing the legacy of like colonialism and racism and sexism and patriarchy and and misogyny and just all these these issues that culminate in the mistreatment of indigenous women in this, this instance and black and Latinx women in other instances as well. Like like we've seen native women, you know. Like right now, and there's starting to be a little more coverage, but since we've had, you know, in, with Native women elected to Congress here in the States, we're now seeing a public call be made for people to pay attention to uh, uh, the women who have been disappearing, um, the issues in terms of like sexual assault, et cetera, that have been happening. While this is not exactly the same thing, You know, a call to pay attention to the travesty of what has been happening in terms of women's reproductive health rights, particularly in this context, Native women who, even though going back to Mary's comment, may not represent the largest group affected, but certainly is a group of women who are are greatly overlooked when we're talking
3: about advocating in the news. You know, one of the things I was struck with was uh, when Anna was saying that in Canada, the women, Indigenous women, were not surprised. To, to hear about you know ster- sterilization and you know, ongoing sterilization now and i would say you know certainly the same thing in indian country here on this side of the border there's just you know there's an ongoing um inequity in healthcare for native women and just even you know we've recently seen some focus on you know the missing and murdered um indigenous women and girl um issue and you know uh, sarah deer who's uh, you know the people that helped craft the legislation for VAWA said, you know, it's been open season on Native women's bodies since contact. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can look, we can look back at um, maybe more immediately relating to what we're discussing today. Um, I was just writing about the Indian Child Welfare Act, and you know, it was until '78 really that there was just, you know, I think it was like 25 to 35 percent of Native children were fostered out or adopted away, and a lot of those um, adoptions occurred at bedside, it's when the women um, had just given birth yeah. and were at their weakest points. So, and this is, you know, often often in you know hospitals, public hospitals, you know, that receive public funding, and and these various adoption advocates, you know, would uh, have access to them, Um and that was, you know, just part of public policy. Um, and most recently, I wrote something in June about, uh, the high rates of, uh, infants and, uh, maternal mortality for Native women. We actually are at the top, often, um, and subjected to some of the worst, um, um intervention practices in, in, childbirth. So, and women are really, you know, Native women are, they're really afraid to go to a lot of these mainstream, um, healthcare institutions because they just assume that they probably aren't going to be treated very well they're going to be there's going to be all these kind of um, othering practices assumptions about their um, their health about the way that they care for themselves and their health status and they often you know they reported um, I think it was a study by, I'm just trying to look um, let me just see a moment, um, but at any rate, you know the women that that were asked her said that they you know they didn't feel respected. they felt it was the oh, I'm sorry, the Center for American Progress, and a lot of the women said, you know they really felt like so disrespected and they were very fearful that stuff things were going to be done to them without their consent, so you know it's just you know because of what has happened to us you know, I think that we don't, we have, um, a fear and perhaps even not even an expectation, um, of being treated fairly, but I think, you know, sure. as all of the, as these things are coming out more as the main, and I would say as well, white people are talking about it. So <laughs> so now it's, it's starting, to, you know, uh, people are aware of it, um, you know, and, and, advocates have been hollering, you know, from their bully pulpits for generations and generations, but at last perhaps, you know, um, it's being recognized that this is an ongoing inequity in our um, health policies, and it's about time that we listen, that people listen and, and uh, did something about it in response.
4: Yeah, yeah. Just to um, to build on on what you're saying, um, uh, from talking to uh, Yvonne Boyer, who is a senator, Canadian senator. Um, who has studied a lot about the kind of history of discrimination of Indigenous women and Indigenous people in Canadian law. Um, She, in researching the piece, she told me about how um, this instance of this um, this forced sterilization of Indigenous women is so rooted in a historic uh, dehumanization of Indigenous people in Canada and, and what you were saying, Anoa, about the colonial legacy. Like, it is just so deeply... Um, such a deep aspect to what what is happening here. Um, she told me about the uh, this thing called the guardian and ward model of law, which has been the model of law that has um, that has dictated how Indigenous people are treated in Canada since you know since colonialism started essentially, um, and it is the exact logic that says that um indigenous people don't have the capabilities to make decisions about their own health and well-being which of course is so rooted in uh dehumaniz- dehumanizing racism and um uh it's what led to the widespread practice of um you know taking in- indigenous children from their homes um and putting them in residential schools which affected um 150,000 First Nation, Métis and Inuit children um in Canada so um, this, this kind of, this is so deeply rooted in the um, systems of law in Canada, and um, I would imagine the U.S. as well. So um, that, that's why it's, it's so, you know, it's not just happening out of nowhere, you know, it's happening in the context of um, this colonial culture that doesn't respect the traditions and cultures of indigenous people.
1: No, I really appreciate both of you in that additional context because, while you know, talking just specifically about the issues affecting women, you know, particularly in this one singular context, you know, forced sterilizations is super important. But I appreciate both of you, uh, and I appreciate Mary, you really bringing in about the um, about the adoptions, right, um, and and how children are literally being. Not even just taken away from their their mothers, which is super problematic in and of itself, but also in many of these instances, being ripped away from their their would be communities and culture like they're, they're they're being completely cut off right so so it's it's another violation of another human rights level right, in terms of children and access and 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 it's it's just I don't even know where we live. We get fed all this BS about the country we live in and the freedom and democracy and, and like equity and all this other stuff. And you can look back historically of all these battles but we're still fighting so intently and so desperately to protect and preserve, you know, uh, 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 people's identity, people's way of life, community, and again, just basic human rights and decency, Like, like, very rarely would you ever see this happen to a, a white mother and child, this this forced separation. It's very rarely. If if it does happen, I'm going to say it's very rare that it happens. But we do see this. And we probably, I'm sure when if we were to look at records, seeing what happens with Native families in this context, it probably, you know, dwarfs you know, how it might happen in other groups. But what are some of the things that that from you you all's experience, what are some of the things that we can do to, I hate the term allies personally, but to show support for different efforts or work around these issues? How can we help lend value? You know, I mean, we we all know, obviously we can lift and share the, the work of folks like Mary, of other people out here who are trying to raise the alarm about these issues, but what are some other things that maybe that you all can think of that we can do to help contribute not only to the discourse, but actually maybe to some of the movement and action
3: around addressing these things? Um, this is Mary. Um, this, actually, the AMA film is, I think it was like just a couple of days ago, as premiered at the Global Health Film Festival in London um and their the hope is and i think also if you i'll try to find a link there's sort of the interesting story of the film how they just sort of uh it was this british you know white woman who made it who was she was making a documentary film about vivian westwood (laughs) i don't know she came to the u.s and heard about this and for whatever reason was moved to pursue making this film um but the goal of sharon ostotoya um who's as i mentioned this she suddenly into residents in South Dakota is, because, is to show the film like that, like, powwows, and and just at various uh, Native gatherings to you know to let uh, young Native women know and to let other Native people know that this happened and a lot of the uh, survivors are still with us and just sort of gain an awareness. So I can, you know, when, if and when I find a link exactly to this uh, petition, I can um, send that to you and I think maybe the other thing, although although I am very, you know, I'm really pleased that um, a lot of these stories about, you know, this um, institutionalized racism and, and health inequities are are are, are being, you know. Um, written about and published in the mainstream press, I do sort of struggle with, oh, gosh, you know, we've been hollering about this, like, forever. And, and now just because it's like, it has, it's like, to me, it's sort of, um, the, the mainstream world, and I'm, I mean, I guess mostly white folks have to find language to describe it. And then when they find, you know, like a syndrome or something, they just love to to uh, spout that. But I think that I would beg people to look a little bit more, you got to take a little deeper look, you know, into what powers these, um, you know, these policies and what are the ongoing, what is, what are the roots of colonialism, if you will. And so that's a new, now all of a sudden we're talking about colonialism. And actually I have an editor who's just, um, a native editor who has forbade the use of the word now. It's <laughs> so popular. But, um, you know, this goes way beyond a social media, that's, uh, a popular social media. I mean, this goes into some very deep issues of racism and um, othering of, um, particularly I think of indigenous people. And I would encourage people to take more of a historical look. It would just require some reading, you know, something we can do.
1: Thank you. Um, Anna, I don't know if you have any thoughts to add to that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I echo everything Mary said, um, and I think continuing to talk about it, um, you know, educating yourself, as Mary said, on the, the roots of this stuff, you know, realizing this is not a flash in the pan, um, this is... Um, you know, a systemic issue that is rooted in our our shared history um, that we all are implicated in in some way or another. Um, one one quote that um, really got me from the the research in my story the uh, the lawyer who is um, the the lawyer who is representing these women um, she said uh, at what time does inaction in the face of knowledge become intent? Um, And that really struck me because it means once we know about this, you know, it is all, anyone who learns about this, it's our duty to not um, become complacent about um, the people who are, you know, being really unfairly treated in our society. Um, And so I think um, to be, you know, to like not, to not um, forget or, you know, think, oh, that's unfortunate, you know, like. We have the power to to change our systems and to learn about our history and realize how we're we're implicated. Um, and I think we have to, um, you know, all of us um, start taking this, you know, even more seriously and and putting these stories at the, the top of our minds. Great.
3: Well, you know, I think you. both... I, I want to. Okay. Oh, no, go ahead, Mary. Sorry. I just something I wanted to add. There's and um. There's right now. Um, there was a there was just a last month there was a decision um, by a uh, judge in Texas, uh, Reed O'Connor finding the Indian Child Welfare Act unconstitutional.
0: Mm-hmm. and that's a big
3: that's a really, really big deal. That's the first time there's been a lot of challenges to if well, as we call it, um, but this is the first time it's gone to the federal court. and if ICLA is found unconstitutional and he and the, and the kind of the, the objections that are being made just really kind of, they are abhorrent um there's an organization called the Goldwater Institute which has other reasons sort of connected to for why they're opposing ICWA. But, um, there, some of their arguments, uh, were that it's, the ICWA doesn't essentially denies uh, American Indian kids, uh, their basic human rights and, and also alludes to our high rates in Native people. children are the highest, uh, rate of representation in foster care. So it's basically saying that, you know, uh, and uh, the, um, Antidote for some wrong generations of federal assimilation policies is more of the same. So if this were to if this remains unchallenged, this would be the end of tribal sovereignty as we know it. So it's a like a really big deal, and it's something to keep track of.
1: Definitely appreciate that that other n- little nugget there. You guys are so amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate being able to dig in um, and everyone, if you're listening, make sure you check the different links and stuff that are in the description because we'll have um, we will have the petition that Mary spoke of and links to both articles and more. So thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Mary and. I really appreciate you both.
3: Thank you for having
1: me. All right, talk to yeah, you. Yeah, thanks
3: for your interest, Noah. Thank you.
1: Absolutely.